Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be wrapping up the Victorian state election and wrapping up 2022 with two guests. My first guest is Narelle Mirigliotta. Narelle is a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Monash University. Hello, Narelle. Hello, Ben. Thank you for the invitation. My second guest is Henry Schlechter. Henry is an amateur election analyst, often seen in discussions about elections on Twitter. Hello, Henry. Pleasure to be on here, Ben. So the counting is now finished for the Victorian state election. Despite some media pushing a narrative of a close election and a potential hung parliament, the Andrews Labor government has been re-elected with an increased lower house majority, despite a substantial swing against them. Meanwhile, we have the final results from the upper house, with Glenn Drury's influence significantly diminished, with the crossbench dominated by the Greens and legalised cannabis. Narelle, do you think Labor is in a stronger position after this win? Uh, The answer is probably yes and no. Um, On the yes front, I mean, clearly they won government. You know, whoever wins a majority in the lower house essentially gets to to form government. So that's definitely in the short to medium term, that's a great thing for the government. They also managed to extend their majority. They claimed a number of new seats. Um, And, you know, as I said, the size of their majority is quite substantial. This does give the government... um, a certain right to be able to claim it has an authoritative mandate, certainly as it applies to the to, to the lower house. Um, but if you look at first preference votes, um, the party did suffer a, a fairly sizable swing against it, a, a, a just under a six percent swing against the party, five point eight percent swing. This is slightly higher than. Um, 2010, and at that election, the Labor Party lost that uh, that particular election. Um, in Andrew's own seat, he also suffered a swing against him of about 8.5%. So that's kind of nothing to get too excited about either. And um, we did see some big swings on a two-party preferred basis across several northern and western suburb um, seats. So, I mean, to that extent, it isn't the, the greatest of outcomes. They also experienced a swing against them in the Legislative Council and they also came out of that election three seats down. So sure, if the only metric we're counting here is who got to claim government, then absolutely, this is a a good win. Um, If we're looking at other kind of metrics, then not so good. Yeah, I think it was a very good result for Labor. Um, I think in terms of where you saw the swings happen, um, it was a set of very efficient swings for the Labor Party. Um, so for the, the good results for the coalition were generally speaking in outer suburban, northern northern in particular, but also western seats like St Albans, Thomastown, Broadmeadows, when you had, I believe in some cases, almost double digit swings to the coalition. But of course, there's not much good to having a, a big swing to your Labour holder seat with 70% of the vote. Um, so to some extent, Labour have, have lost votes that were being wasted anyway. And in most of their really marginal seats, they didn't go backwards very much. The only mar- really marginal seats they lost were obviously Q and Nepean, and even and Nepean was the only one where there was a really substantial swing to the Liberal Party. So in that sense, it's been a result that gives very efficient swing uh, for Labour. Um, and it sets them up very well for the next election, um, Kevin Bonham has gone into this on more detail, but you're talking about a very, very large swing required for the Liberal Party to actually get a majority and to get into government next time. Um, they've had some losses in terms of primary vote, had a few losses in terms of the upper house. I think they'd be 
quite reasonably happy with the upper house result overall. I think that you'd take it. It's certainly not the most hostile upper house any any government's facing in Australia today. Um, so I think it was a pretty good result for Labor overall. Yeah, the thing I would say as well is, uh, on the one hand, they they have a huge majority. They're in a strong position. Uh, on the other hand, their vote is quite low, and it makes them a, a bit more vulnerable in that sense. Uh, one of the things I found really interesting was the list of seats that are like the Liberals' path to victory now has a lot more northern and western seats. And like, sure, they can win those. doesn't require much more of a swing. But are there the voters there who are willing to consider voting Liberal or have they already got them all? Like, we don't really know. Those other eastern and southern seats that they've gone backwards in, they have a history. And, you know, we know they're more predictable. Probably there's people in the Liberal Party who know how to run campaigns in those areas much better. And so it is a, a lot more like there's the potential there, but um, there's a lot more uncertainty about it, about how they would go about achieving that. We're going to keep this a bit uh, short because the what the listener might not know is that we uh, we had a bit of a technical glitch and we lost about uh, about 20 minutes of us talking about this topic. So we're going to um, move on now to talking about the Legislative Council. When we recorded our last episode three weeks ago, we didn't have much for the Upper House. We had the votes, but we didn't have um, much beyond that. We now have all the results. Uh, Overall, there's kind of a clear progressive majority. Um, in particular, the Greens have done well. They have four members of the upper house. If the Greens and legalised cannabis as a block of six all vote together, they kind of put the rest of the crossbench out of business. And for the Greens, if the Greens are opposing something that Labor wants to pass and the coalition is also opposing it, it's possible it can get through, but it requires a very diverse range of MLCs, legalised cannabis, animal justice, One Nation, etc., to pass it. It's a bit of a change from last time. Labor's, Labor's seat count's gone backwards, kind of in line where they're dropping their vote in a way that the lower house didn't. Um, and, uh, I mean, probably legalised cannabis are the most interesting story, but there's also an element of the story about what happened to Glenn, the Glen Drury Alliance, that he probably got about three MLCs elected this time compared to about eight last time. Uh, a bit of that solidarity was lost there. Uh, Henry, your thoughts on the upper house? But I think that's right. The Drury Alliance was pretty heavily disappointed, would have to be pretty heavily disappointed by this result. There are a couple of things that happened. We obviously had, just before the submission of the group voting tickets, a decision of animal justice to essentially almost stab Drury in the back by accepting preferences from all the other minor parties within his alliance and then directing preferences to the parties they were ideologically close to instead of the Drury parties. But you also had One Nation and United Australia directing preferences to the Liberal Party ahead of the minor parties as well. Um, so I believe in Western Metropolitan, if you had had a, those two parties that directed preferences to DLP, which was within the Drury camp, you would have had uh, Bertie Finn re-elected as an MLC. Um, he was running there. So to some extent, it was a pretty disappointing result for, for the Drury Alliance and what is presumably the last group voting ticket jurisdiction. The legalised cannabis angle is, is interesting. I don't think we know much about legalised cannabis. They run, generally speaking, run shoestring campaigns. They didn't only registered a handful of how-to-vote cards, for example, on the VEC's website. I think when it comes out, they'll have spent very little money. Um, and that, I don't think that they're not particularly well-organised party. Like I said, they get the majority of their vote purely from name recognition, at least as far as we know. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how um, legalised cannabis behaves. 
in the upper house because they, their MLCs could be, we don't really know what they stand for. I don't know then. I can't remember any of their names. Um, I know, for, but I do know, for example, in Western Australia, one of their MLCs is, of their two MLCs there, has refused to release their vaccination status. They're one of only two members of state parliament who have done that. So they may have odd views elsewhere. Perhaps the in the Victorian upper house at the moment, you have, um, well, you, you, you at the last term, there was Andy, Andy Medic was perhaps an example of a, a minor party MLC who was very good with, with Labor. Um, he got a number of, I think, broader concessions out of them in exchange for pretty consistent support, more consistent support than the Greens on their issues. I don't know if a legalised cannabis is going to be like that. They're going to accept moves towards their signature policy in exchange for consistent support for Labor and anything else. Or perhaps it's going to be more like Nick Xenophon, I guess, in the sense that Nick Xenophon was elected on the one issue, is selected as a no pokies candidate, but he's obviously broadened his political horizons over his career. He had more views than that, and he was a obviously not not consistently supportive of one political side or another. One of the other things that came up for me when we were talking about legalized cannabis before in our first attempt was um, it's a lot of work to coordinate a party with more than one politician in parliament. You've got to compromise, you've got to divide up responsibilities. Uh, you know, you've got to communicate well, you've got to do all that stuff. It's hard enough for professional politicians to do that when they have a party structure. When there's two people, it's very easy for that to to break down. There's lots of cases of small parties that get two people elected and by the end of the term, they're not talking to each other, you know, and um, I don't think we can necessarily assume that legalised cannabis will vote as a block, even if they're probably a relatively friendly party to the government on average, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to bear that in mind that, like, um, overall, there is a progressive majority in that upper house, but Labor and the Greens gets to 19, Animal Justice gets to 20, and uh, after that it gets a little bit messy. And, look, I do think um, legalised cannabis is really the wild card here because for all the reasons that both of you have pointed out, we don't really we, – we know we know what their signature policy is. They are very much a single-issue party. Um, but we don't have any great sense of what it is they might support outside of that particular, that very narrow set of interests. And also, too, one of the things that, that kind of interests me a bit, if you are a single-issue party and you manage to achieve the, the kind of big issue that you were elected to kind of solve, where does that leave you? And it's not clear to me that this party has a backup plan, that it has really thought about what happens once it's been able to address this particular issue. Um, it may be that it just wants to solve this particular issue and then it's happy to kind of, you know, you know disappear from the political scene. It's also worth touching on the prospects of reform for the upper house group. Voting tickets, I think, probably uh, change the outcome in um, seven seats by my count. I think the Greens would have won an extra two seats without group voting tickets. Um, the DLP and the Shooters would have won different seats. I think the Victorian Socialists probably would have won a seat without it. It would have been a little bit more progressive, um, probably more dominated by the bigger parties. Um, but one of the interesting things has been hearing more voices being critical of group voting tickets, not a consensus from all the minor parties that, well, it works for us, so we want it. You know, One Nation's been opposed to it. 
Um, interestingly, the new animal justice MP, Georgie Purcell, has come out and said, we support reform. And she's been more specific about this before. Now, animal justice has kind of implied they support reform with conditions. But she said, we want there to be a single chamber, a single electorate covering the whole state, which is basically how it works now. It will work at the next election in Western Australia. It's mostly, except for the fact that they elect half at every election, mostly how it works in New South Wales and South Australia too. Um, and I've been arguing for that too. I think that is part of the answer. It would actually elect a lot of these parties, but they would be elected in kind of fair proportion to their vote, not on the basis of backroom preference deals as well. So there's a blog post that's going to go up on my website before this podcast is released, going through the the different numbers uh, for various models based on these results. But um, so keep an eye out for that. I was going to talk about the sort of minor party disappearing because the sort of basis of their issues is is, is limited in visibility. Um, I guess I would say that a, a, a perhaps an example of that was Fiona Patton, um, whose political career I think has ended. Um, she was she came up short in Northern Metropolitan by a, a fair fair margin. Um, to some extent, I think Fiona Patton's signature political issues was always very interested in same-sex marriage, always interested in euthanasia. To some extent, those sort of social liberal issues dropped off the agenda when they've obviously both become legal. And so now um, I think to some extent that her, she almost put herself out of a job by when those issues were resolved. Um, in terms of reform, I I saw that animal justice pledge, but it did it did beg the question for me whether animal justice would vote for just an abol- straight out abolition of group voting tickets um, without the precondition that we have to have a single statewide electorate. Um, because I think the latter is a less attractive option for the major parties, obviously. And I believe it's entrenched in the Victorian constitution that there have to be eight five-member electorates, although I'm not, not entirely sure how that entrenchment works. I can't remember the details of that. So it's not, it wasn't clear to me whether that would, was a sort of an excuse for animal justice to say, we don't like this system, but we're not going to vote to get rid of it unless it, it's compensated for us. I, I wasn't sure how that worked. I think in terms of reform, the sort of problem for Labor is still there of they still don't want to be dependent on a green block, on having to choose between the Greens and coalition to pass legislation. So I think for Labor, it might be not quite so attractive to pass reform, but they did it in South Australia. They did it in Western Australia. They may view the the behaviour of the legalised cannabis MLCs and the particularly Adam Somierek as being, you know, embarrassing that they they rather have the Greens than that. But I, I don't think reform is guaranteed by any any stretch of the imagination, unfortunately. The only thing I'm really wondering about is because the Drury kind of ability to profit financially from this system, I wonder to, to what extent that's really kind of um, awakened voters to the system in, in a way or to think about the system in a way that they maybe had otherwise just taken for granted. I mean, it's it's always been a pretty kind of a little bit complex to navigate the, the, the kind of ballot paper, but nevertheless I'm not sure to what extent people were thinking about it but I, the idea that somebody's found a way to monetize group ticket voting I'm wondering whether or not that's a strong enough kind of catalyst there might be enough support within the electorate for the government to really move on this this time round 
because I'm just not sure to what extent the public were engaged or thinking about that issue in quite the same or the voter was thinking about that issue in in quite the same way that that maybe that whole issue kind of really brought to their attention in a different way is what I mean. For Labor, they obviously have structural reasons why they like having group voting tickets. And I don't think those have gone away, even if they're a bit embarrassed that Adam Somerick's held on. And it's not just that he's been re-elected, but really he got elected partly on voter confusion of people thinking they're voting for the Labor Party instead of voting for him. That I'm sure that's infuriated a lot of people in the ALP that he's been able to do that. But there are still those structural reasons in place that they support the reform. One thing that I think has been at least partly taken away is the fear, well, if we bring up this issue, we're going to alienate the crossbench and it's going to make our lives hell. It's part of the reason why the Turnbull government kind of sat on it until the last minute. You know, they've got the Greens now. Um, Maybe they can find some way to get a couple of the others to stay happy. It's maybe not quite such a big problem as it was last time, if not entirely gone away. Um, I think they have two choices. You're definitely right, Henry. Abolishing the region's would um, be more difficult to do. It requires a referendum. It could be more consensus-driven, could be seen as pushing a case saying this is the way that we get rid of this thing that's unfair. I think also you would expect a bit of pushback um, from particularly the, the nationals about not having dedicated regional representation. I actually think, I'm planning to look into this for New South Wales, but I actually think you probably find country areas are probably better represented than outer suburban areas when it comes to upper houses. That's the evidence from countries like Israel and the Netherlands that don't have local electorates is the capital cities are usually well represented and the peripheries represented very well and the kind of the groups in between are not quite so well represented. But generally parties achieve geographic representation. But I can imagine that being a fear anyway. I think there's a good chance we won't see reform in the next term, but, you know, maybe the door has been opened a little bit. I think there's reason to be worried about the fact that there was a reasonably public campaign to get people to vote below the line, both major newspapers editorialising in favour of it, and that rate only went up by a very small amount. So I'm a bit pessimistic, I have to say, about the possibility of getting serious public attention on the issue of reform. I think I feel like it's something that, you know, it's going to be embarrassing in four years to have to deal with it for the government. But as Ben talked about, the structural reasons why Labor would rather have some cross benches to negotiate with to have an alternative path to the Greens are still very much there. But I think the the regional representation, I didn't know it required a referendum. Um, I think that would be that would be tricky, and it wouldn't be a particularly attractive proposition for either Labor or the Liberals and Nationals. So, it sort of depends on the attitude the minor parties take to particularly legalised cannabis, who may feel well, they have a substantial, they have some real vote. They might feel like they have a better chance under a reform system and might not go strongly against it. But I think it would be it, it still strikes me that the the cards are a bit stacked against reform. I think Ben's right. One other thing we wanted to mention as well is the example of the Victorian socialists who have kind of run uh, the kind of campaign you don't normally see from a far-left party, very electorally focused, um, and polled really well in the North Metro region. They polled 4.7%. Um, Henry, Henry, you mentioned this. Uh, what do you find so interesting about their campaign? I think it's interesting because, well, generally speaking, and particularly in Melbourne, there's been in those the inner northern councils, you've had a sort of handful of left of the Greens representation 
generally speaking, independence. But it's a new thing for it to be spreading to um, state politics, um, except as occasional scattered independent campaigns. So it's unusual for a for a big, serious left of the left of the Greens party to be running a campaign, and they did very well. I believe, if, for example, in in Footscray, they polled nearly nine point seven percent. I felt I think it was about nine point seven percent, just just behind the Liberals. Um, I thought it was the up the upper house results were I think a bit bit trickier for them because they could have they they came recently had a very good preference flow towards them in northern metro they came pretty close in western metro as well they didn't improve as much as western metro seemingly from the last election they didn't improve a whole lot they only improved a bit despite those very good uh, individual district level results so it may be the case that they have a ceiling it may be the case that they're much better at running focused local campaigns than they are across a bigger uh, upper house electorate. But they're certainly a certainly a party to watch, and I think the way, that, particularly whether they take away votes from the Greens, whether they become a problem for the Greens in the future, that's going to be quite interesting to watch. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast, and that's it for the Tally Room for 2022. Thank you, Henry and Narelle, for joining me. Thank you, Henry. Pleasure to be here, Ben. And thank you, Narelle. Thank you, Ben, and and thank you, Henry. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.